Hey, this is John from No Driving Gloves. Just a quick note before the show. It's our apologies that the episodes have been so sporadic the last couple of weeks. We've just all had an extremely busy spring, and it's been a tough time to keep up. Same challenges kind of we were hitting last year. Will's just got a ton of shows. He bought a new house, had to move. Derek's had a lot of openings and entertaining to do with his real day job. As I've mentioned, I'm also in the process of moving home, moving shop, and moving studios. So it's just been a rough couple of weeks. This episode was supposed to come out a week ago, and then Derek and I are kind of trying to address a little bit of apologies for not being here, and Will was supposed to join us this week, but with my moving, we was unable to set up a record time for everybody. So hopefully we'll get a, this this episode will ha- handle you. Give us a week or two for the next one, and by then we should pretty much be settled back on our regular weekly production schedule. But if you do have any show topics or ideas, feel free to email us, nodrivinggloves@gmail.com. Check the website. It should be a little bit more boring, but a little bit more informative and up-to-date with all the episodes posted automatically there. Or check us out on Facebook. That seems to be the best math method of following us. No Driving Gloves, all one word on Facebook, or again, Instagram, No Driving Gloves. We'll look for you there. Give us some topics. We've got some exciting shows planned out, some exciting interviews coming up over the summer. So hope you enjoy this episode. Just keep in mind it's a week delayed, so everything we're talking about was two weeks ago instead of a week. We'll be seeing you. Thank you, everybody, for joining us again for No Driving Gloves. We've got Derek and John tonight. Uh, Will's still occupied with a little bit of moving, a little bit of traveling. We've all been very busy with events that are uh, tied to our respective day jobs. Kind of sucks. We just haven't made that podcast millions. It's kind of funny. <laughs> you don't all of a sudden have a podcast and get a Ferrari. You you promised me that when we started this. And I think we've had this conversation before, but yeah. Yeah, I, I've got it. You just got to come pick it up. Okay. It's an old Ferrari, though, so, you know, they're not worth anything. Yeah, does it say Hot Wheels on the bottom? <laughs> no. Jeez. Oh, okay. Like I said, it, we've all been traveling. We've all been busy. Um, I, Well, maybe not traveling. I think Derek stayed home. I, I hit the road, hit a couple of events, had a couple of my day job. Uh, Derek's, uh, I think, had a few, and... I know if you happen to be over in Atlanta this past weekend, which would be, what was that, April 27th, 28th or so, uh, Will was at um, the Summit Motorama in uh, Atlanta with his crew and a few cars, and hopefully we get him back next week to join us and fill us in on the happenings there and kind of the the street ride industry coming up. But we're going to take this opportunity on this episode to maybe talk about a couple of spring and summer events, what is happening at, like I said, our day jobs or what, what we went ahead and did. You know, I headed out on the, this past Friday to the, to the Midi at Road Atlanta, hung out there a little bit and saw some old race cars and some other podcasters and made some co- new connections and, you know, had some conversations. Derek, what what have you been up to? Anything interesting, personally, work-wise, etc.? Or, uh, I've been up to a lot. Obviously, um, you know, we all know that 
we weren't able to record and, and get a new episode out uh, last week. So obviously, Will, John, and I were pretty busy with our, as John says, respective day jobs. And, you know, that's I think that's the way summer often goes and spring, summer, and fall often goes for those of us in this hobby slash profession uh, because this is, of course, the time of year for car shows, car events, everything car-related, because there's not snow and salt all over the roads. But a busy weekend. We had one of our biggest weekends of the year at the National Corvette Museum this past weekend, which is the Michelin Bash weekend, which is basically just a big gathering of Corvettes, and good times are had by all. We do a lot of road tours, just different events throughout the weekend, seminars. Uh, there's people over at the motorsports park running on the track. So just a, a lot going on in the Bowling Green area when, when the bash rolls into town. You know, I don't even know. I think we were around 1,500, 2,000 Corvettes in town this weekend. So, and I and I saw everything from you know, uh, I think the earliest I saw was a 1958 up to obviously the 2019 ZR1s uh, were at the show. Some that were already purchased ones that, uh, you know, just your normal owner was driving to the um, uh, four or five that General Motors brought down. Of course, General Motors uh, supports the bash heavily. They They bring cars down. They bring about Typically, I think it's eight to 10 cars every year, uh, usually whatever the newest version of Corvette is. And they do seminars on what's new for 2019. You know, this year would be what it, what was new for 2019. Obviously, a lot of talk about the ZR1 and, uh, you know, everything that, that went into building that car and, and getting it ready to go for the street and for the track. And, of course, they usually make some major announcement along the way and uh, this year we learned that there's two new paint colors coming out uh, in the next few months and a very uh, beautiful uh, blue color and a, a very uh, nice gray that are coming out uh, i don't remember the names right offhand of the two colors i probably should have studied up on that before recording uh but <clears throat> we had a good time as i said you know road tours go on i led uh, two of the road tours for our membership and uh, got to go up to a, a local distillery and uh, pizza place not terribly far from bowling green about an hour away and then stayed in Bowling Green the next day and visited the Aviation Heritage Park, which is a uh, outdoor museum park dedicated to the uh, kind of South Central Kentucky pilots of the uh, military, so Air Force, Navy, uh, all of them that fly, Army. And <clears throat> we did a nice road tour there and then went to a local ice cream place for lunch and ice cream. So was running around a lot around a lot this weekend. And uh, of course, you know, any anytime big events going on, we have a lot of the membership and board members in town. So a lot of meetings, things like that. That's what tied me up uh, and was allowed me not, to not record for our last episode. So uh, yeah, a lot going on the past weekend, John. You were talking a little bit about the ZR1, and I'm going to ask you a question here in a minute because, to be honest, I haven't paid 
close enough attention to remember the specs, but um, I had my first exposure on Saturday at one of the local uh, car club gatherings to my first uh, Dodge Demon. Uh, and it kind of had a cool license plate. He's surprised it made it through the DMV. Uh, you'll know it if you see it on the Power Tour in June, provided they haven't taken it away from him by then. Kind of makes reference to where the demons live. But, you know, 808 horsepower, and, you know, we're talking about, um, I can't remember the tuner that ran a 938 with theirs this weekend with pretty much just doing headers and a couple other things. But what are the performance numbers on that ZR1? And are the owners, or did you hear any chatter? You know, I know so many people with Z06s, one of the local Corvette clubs here, uh, when the Z06 first came out, the, the C7 Z06, so many of those guys bought them. They were the largest or the Corvette club with the most Z06s by capita or something. I mean, just about everybody in the club owns one. Uh, when it comes to our exotic club, everybody seems to have a Z06 as a rain car. A couple of them have uh, Callaway Z06s. Uh, we got a local Callaway dealership here in, Bir- in Birmingham. So, you know, the, those are just amazing cars. And the ZR1, I wasn't too excited about, but I think they did a nice job, made some aggressive styling in that. And what do you, do you know what kind of numbers is that putting down? It's got to be close to the Demon or Demon-esque numbers, doesn't it? Yeah, what was the what was the demon number you threw out there? I think the demon's eight oh eight when you have all the tuning and stuff done to it. Uh might be a little bit a little bit higher than that, but Yeah, so the the two thousand nineteen ZR one coming out of coming out of factory, obviously not anything done to it. Um they're rolling it out at seven hundred and fifty five horsepower. But you probably got a car that's what, seven hundred pounds lighter than a Dodge Demon. And a car that goes right and left. I listen to, uh, like I've said before, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And um, Goldberg's on one now, and he he's known for his Dodge affection. And he uh, he's got a couple of Hellcats that he road races and runs. I guess one's for sale right now because he's making room for his Demon. And he's building, and I can't remember, he's got a nickname for it, but he's trying to make a road racer out of a Demon. And they were talking about, it, it's tough because the demons are built to go in a straight line, come from the factory to go in a straight line, and shocks are different, sway bars are different, control arms are different, all this fun stuff. And uh, what I found fascinating talking to the owner this weekend of the local demon, he he got it fully equipped. You know, he bought the um, the power pack or whatever that comes in the trunk, gives you the drag radials and the ECU that bumps you another thirty or forty horsepower. But he ordered the back seat in the car. That cost him a buck. And he ordered uh, the passenger seat in the car, and that cost him a buck. And he was making, you know, some points about that, though, is if he would have ordered the car without the passenger seat or without the back seat, he can't legally add them afterwards. I mean, you can go to the junkyard and buy the stuff. And granted, they would have cost more than a dollar. But the point is... When you, for that dollar, you not only get seat rails and a seat for the passenger side, you get the seat belt, you get the door airbags, you get the side curtain airbags, you get the dash airbag for the passenger. And if you don't buy that seat, um, obviously it saves a few pounds on the car, but you can never run that car with the passenger legally because you don't have any of the safety equipment, the airbags and probably even the side impact beam on the passenger side and just little things like that that 
it's kind of funny that, you know, this option was a buck and this option was a buck and this option was a buck. Like it's like Dodge wanted you to take them uh, and didn't want to get too exorbitant with the price of the car, but just kind of, you know, funny things, I guess, when, you know, when you're talking $90,000 car and I guess your passenger seat's optional, I can understand back seat being optional, but it's kind of funny. The passenger seat was optional in that car. Your Corvettes come fully loaded and they come with a back seat and a passenger seat, right? Um, you want to, you want to rephrase that, John? I was just seeing if you're paying attention. <laughs> Oh, okay. Make sure I didn't fall asleep over here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I mean the the Corvette, the the ZR1. You know that 755 horse. Um, it's like 715 pound feet of torque. It's for the manual coupe. I think their MSRP right now is around like 119. So you know, I mean they're probably selling. I mean they're they're highly desired cars so i'm guessing they're probably going over 120 um at the dealerships and and such but you know it's as you were saying john you know the the hellcats and and you know some of those cars that mopar is turning out right now you know a lot of those are really meant for drag racing i mean it's it's more in comparison with the yeah, when GM rolls out their Copo Camaros every year, let's say, maybe a little bit of difference there because the Copos can't even be licensed for the road. But you know, the 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 Corvette, the ZR1 is is really a true track car. It is a road course track car, and it is meant to go right left as fast as possible. Insane handling on them. Uh, you know, we've seen the numbers coming out of, uh, VIR and, uh, you know, they're, I think at VIR, they, they beat the Ford GT track time, you know, the, the record lap. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's really incredible. I mean, Corvette has always been, tried to be on the cutting edge, you know, the technology and, and what that car is as a sports car. And in all honesty, anymore headed towards being a supercar. I mean, we can forget the 19, late 70s into the early 80s, but, uh, you know, I mean, it is, it is, I mean, just insane. And it's, in some ways, it is kind of reminiscent right now of, I guess, what I would refer back to as the, you know, mid 1960s up to about the early 1970s when Dodge and all the companies were turning out high horsepower insane muscle cars and you know John like you were talking about you could you could option them out you could either delete things or get extra options to save weight you know, I mean, back in the day that, you know, radio delete optioned cars. So you didn't have the weight of the the radio and, you know, certain other components that you could delete from the, the vehicle to turn it into a street legal drag car. And I think we're seeing that again with some of these cars that are coming out right now, because we didn't see that happening that much in, say, the 80s, 90s and early 2000s you didn't see this happening and all of a sudden we're getting a a flood of high horsepower cars that 
you can do a lot with on the track, both drag strip and road course, and you can pull off the track and go drive down the street. It's kind. I mean, it's it's pretty incredible. It, it, I think your analogy is pretty pretty correct. There, it, it's a horsepower war. It's a performance war. It's the guy that's got you know the most on the block, and you know Ford's hasn't quite introduced their you know new Shelby, the GT five hundred or whatever it's going to be. So you know we've got to do kind of do the the Demon the the ZR one, and of course uh, what is it the ZL one Camaro. You know, they're all up there with just, you know, that supreme performance that everybody that went away in 1974 and was never coming back because of the gas crisis. And it just took us 30 years to figure out how to do it. You know, put the horsepower there. And I mean, it's insane numbers. We talked a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember if it was on the podcast or just you and I on the side, Derek, that you were talking about the 90s ZR1 giving this, you know, you were talking about the mallet V12 or something like that, but you gave specs in that, an episode of uh, more Mondays about the ZR1, 400 horsepower, you know, or 375 horsepower, something like that, 350 pound feet of torque, zero to 60 in five seconds. And I, you know, I was having a conversation with a guy today at uh, work who was on the elevator. One of our patrons just stopped in to see the place and he had a ZR1 shirt on and pointed out our 90 ZR1. And I said, it's kind of funny. You know, my Taurus, those are the numbers that are on it. You know, granted, it's an SHO, but, you know, it took us 30 years. But 400 horsepower is nothing. It doesn't scare anybody anymore. Um, just read an article on Bring a Trailer today. It came out a couple of days ago. Still catching up. Been busy weeks. Uh, about, you know, the Viper and why do we love the first generation Vipers and you know, there, there's one in my family, it's, you know, sits in a garage, but it, you know, just brutal horsepower and a brutal car to drive because it's 400 horsepower and it goes down with no traction control, no ABS or anything. And that's, what's nice about all the, all these computers and all these regulations we feared. That's what brings us these seven and 800 horsepower street cars. I mean, the exotics aren't, don't even, you know, put that out. You know, you're looking five and 600 horsepower out of the 720S McLarens and the 458 or 488 Italias and things like that. You know, even the big supercars aren't putting down what the American muscle cars are, you know, and to each his own on that and different pricing and, you know, a different look and different style for everything, but kind of took us a little bit off track on what we've been doing to stay busy, but it also touches a little bit on that history, I guess, of the cars and how uh, technology now, you, you know, you just can't beat it. I mean, I absolutely, you know, love my SHO. It's, it, you know, it moves, it gets up out of its own way and, you know, has fun and, you know, been looking at some other sports cars recently for the girlfriend. And uh, it's just amazing what's out there and what can be bought. And, 119 is a lot of money, but 109 for a Z06, but you can get into a Corvette for 70, probably 60s with the right incentives and rebates. And that's more performance than any sane person needs. I know most of our listeners are insane, but but going from that, I'll, t- you know, and talking performance, uh, about two weeks ago, I, you know, we, we had our uh, Honda Indy Grand Prix of Alabama at, you know, Barber Motorsports Park. 
And that's all the drivers there could talk about is the new performance out of the Indy car. For some reason, I'm still stuck into the, the cart Indy, whatever split cart IRL can't keep it straight. I understand Indy car has been back for a few years and they're working to make it very fan oriented. And we've seen it with our crowds. The crowds get bigger every year. We had some weather challenges this year, but even taking it into account for that and you're seeing increased involvement and in you know, they've got a new arrow kit this year and, uh, the drivers are saying the cars are lighter, they feel lighter, they're sleeker, um, they're much better aerodynamically, so they're much faster. They're having to break in sections of tracks that they've never had to before. They're putting down phenomenal times, and now that they've got the car and the handling package put together, the drivers are mumbling about, oh, now we're going to start seeing power increases, and hey, you know what? I might have to start watching IndyCar racing because it's not overabundance of rules. It's not uh, Saturday night heat races like some other sports. Uh, they actually have a stylish canopy type thing coming out as opposed to uh, a funky halo. I think IndyCar is getting exciting, and that's kind of reminiscent of what you and I just talked about, about streetcars. We're starting to see power, and we're starting to see... Let's make these things go fast. That that's what isn't that what racing's about is let's see some performance and push technology. Well yeah, and I think that's what I mean, you know, we hearken back to you know when we talked about the ZR1 and and the Hellcats, you know, the days of of Detroit in the 1960s and 1970s, but and the horsepower wars and you know there was no there was no one saying, oh, oh, no, no, you got to be on a level playing field. You can't do that. Look back at Indy racing and NASCAR racing and all the different, well, the couple different forms of racing back then <laughs> that there was no, this has got to be a level playing field. There was no major rule book. There was, you know, how can you make your car beat the next guy at the race on Sunday? And it was about ingenuity and creativity. And if we can get Indy, you know, the Indy car racing back up to that where they don't have as many regulations and there are some things they can start doing, then, yeah, it's it's going to get more interesting again because you're going to see essentially again a power war you're going to see everybody fighting to make the biggest or maybe not the biggest but the biggest numbers let's say uh they can to win the race and you know the tech and i really think from my my opinion and from where i come in this world with the you know history end of things that's what drives advancement of our technology it's it's not a rule book that says you have to have the same engine and you have to have this and this and this and this and it turns it into more about your strategy and when you take your pit stops and you know when you take a slow lap versus when you take a hot lap and and all those things to position yourself where you need to be it it turns it into advancing technology in the automotive industry because you're trying to find the best way to be the best car on the track and I guess that's the way I look at it is that's what makes it more interesting is is how creative can we get, how advanced can we get to be able to go out there and win. Trying to harken back to that history again. 
Yeah, that's what I've always, you know, I like about racing. It's not necessarily the horsepower in that to me, but I'm a firm believer in the in the old adage, the rule book tells you what you can't do. It doesn't tell you what you can. And that's what makes racing fun to me. That's why I am a Lotus fan. I'll admit, Lotus has built some sickingly ugly cars in the past, but they have built everything they built for racing up until the early 80s, and then, of course, they sporadically pushed the envelope since, with Colin Chapman was to design something that broke the rules, per se. It followed the letter, it followed the rule book, stretched it as far as it could go. You know, there's there's stories of the paper mache firewall in a Lotus 18, because it just said there had to be a, a hard surface separating the driver from the engine compartment and didn't say that it had to be fireproof uh got shot down really quick and was replaced with a piece of aluminum but you've got to push the rules and that's what racing is getting us back to i think is pushing the rules and allowing some innovation and creativity and when you do that we start getting the manufacturers back in that starts bringing them money you know bringing money to the sport and rises popularity because to be honest and i'm gonna Let's just say, so I'm not picking on somebody I'm affiliated with, but Kia. Why would Kia want to get into racing if they were told you need a V8 that's three liters that can only turn 18,000 RPM and can only produce this horsepower using this much boost? That's not what they want. They want to say, okay, we want a three liter V6 and we want to see how much horsepower we can, you know, get out of it give them a little freedom and, you know, just th- let the designers design, you know, put down the base parameters and see what we can do. And then they can take that back to their road cars and that. But if you tell them what to build, it doesn't make any sense. It's like Toyota and NASCAR. I mean, Toyota had to backwards engineer the V8 um, a couple of years ago when they entered NASCAR racing so they could be there. You know, they wanted to be there for name recognition as far as a technology thing, it probably drove them crazy that why do we need a push rod V8? Why don't we have overhead valve drivetrains? Why don't we have this efficiency and that efficiency? You know, at least now we finally have even reached fuel injection in NASCAR, you know, 20 years after, you know, the last road car, street legal car sold in the U.S. was in 1995 with a carburetor. Why did NASCAR use them up until, what, 2015, 2016? I don't watch a lot of NASCAR. I can't remember. You know, but like I said, I we had the IndyCar race, which, unfortunately, I worked. And like I say, because I work, I think in 10 years at my job, I might have seen 20 laps total of racing out of, you know, having four races a year. So it's just just working in that. But I we ran a seminar this year, brought in a gentleman named Tom Robertson. Uh, Lotus 7 driver, bought his first Lotus 7 in 1975 for amateur SECA racing or, I guess, semi-professional. The museum has his 1977 championship car. Uh, It's a Lotus 7. He discussed that. He discussed what the history books won't tell you. He said even prepping for the lecture he gave because all of a sudden, here we are again 30, 40 years on. He's all of a sudden getting recognition for what he did in 1977 which was to show up as a privateer amateur. And as he said, you know, with with his crew, which was a bunch of his underdressed friends, most of them high at most times, so he wouldn't let them work on the car, and shows up 
and he ends up winning this championship through a series of bad luck events. All this bad luck added up to him winning the championship, you know, and that was running against the factory British Leyland uh, TR7s. That was up against the factory Datsuns. You know, the year before, the same class, uh, DMOD SCCA, was won by Paul Newman, which we know is the actor, but as we've discussed on the show, is also probably a better race car driver than he was actor. It was just a great seminar to hear this guy reminisce and talk about and talk about his stories. He said after that race, the uh, head of advertising for British Leyland came up to him and said, damn you, Tom, you ruined a year's worth of advertising. They had already produced the artwork, had the copy out, had the ads bought for British Leyland after that race, discussing their national championship with the TR7s and how great of cars they were, and they didn't get it. Then he just kind of said, sorry. They talked about um, Al Holbert bringing him in for a test in like 1979 with this new factory built Porsche that was eligible for DMOD SCCA road racing. And that's what they wanted him to run at the national championship because the driver qualified, the car didn't. So they, he was, you know, eligible for the championship that year. And Porsche wanted him to run this new you know, Porsche they had developed. It was a road car. Uh, I don't know if we're supposed to discuss the model, so I, I won't. But it was a Porsche road car, and Tom went in, and the damn thing, he said, overheated. It would constantly lock up the re- you know rear brakes, even with the bias all the way to the front. It was locking up rear brakes, and he knew machinists in, in Georgia. He was at Road Atlanta doing this testing. And, you know, he, he re-engineered this Porsche in the five-day test that he had. And at the end, he stuck true to his guns and... Tom said he never wanted to work at a desk and he never wanted to work for anybody in his life. And with the exception of a couple of years, he's always done what he wanted. He gets up in the morning, does what he wants and goes to bed a happy man. I don't know how one does that, especially today. I mean, I like to eat. I like to have an air conditioned bed in the summer, things like that. But I guess if you give up some of those creature comforts, you can do that. It was just fascinating listening to him discuss this and he turned down that ride with Al Holbert Racing and Porsche and continued his career as a very happy independent racer and raced up until I think oh four or oh five when he finally, you know, hung up his driving shoes and put the gloves down for the last time. That would have meant he was probably pushing late sixties. Had a heck of a life and it was a wonderful story to Hear him tell. A friend of mine, Ed Kovolchek, will have a printed article on it in Victory Lane coming out in a couple of months if you get that magazine. But just a real fascinating thing. If you really want to hear the story or get the text of that article, drop me a line. And when the article's published, I'll try to get you a copy. It was just wonderful listening to Tom speak. I was the one who did the restoration to his car a few years ago. That's where I met Tom and started to hear some of the wonderful stories he had to tell and some I'm surprised he even repeats but <laughs> very interesting guy part of the uh McNitty racing team and there's a little limerick that goes behind that but if I told you the limerick uh, this would be an explicitly rated podcast but it has something to do We with, can't do that. Yeah, it has something to do with an egg and something that rhymes with McNitty and you can kind of go from there. But that was, you know, like I said, one of the things I did. We had the, and then the MIDI was the other one, which was all historic Datsun Nissans out the wazoo at Road Atlanta following weekend. Nice historic racing, you know, Porsche 962s. Like I said, I met uh, Matt DeAndrea from the 
from CarCast. We know with Adam Carolla or Goldberg, you know, since he piggybacks, <laughs> I harassed him a little bit. He piggybacks the RSS feed for the Matt D'Andrea, Adam Carolla CarCast with the Matt D'Andrea Goldberg uh, RSS feed, which is the thing that feeds you your podcast. It's kind of technical, but if you subscribe to one, you're going to get the other because it's the same subscription code. So just some of the stuff there, chatting with Ooh, them. Can we do that? Uh, kind of. <laughs> if we, if we, <laughs> I mean, the No Driving Gloves car cast. <laughs> nah, the, uh, podcast one has some rules. But I've got an idea on that. And nah, I'm, tr- I'm trying to pitch that to another company. And uh, if you're in Michigan you and you're listening, you might know the company. Uh, but we'll leave it at that. There's a lot of companies in Michigan, so I'm safe there. But I've got one that I think would do really, really well with a podcast network. And you're pushing that one of the uh, one of the hosts is a Michigan native, right? I mean, come on. Yes, we'll say I I, I am. <laughs> huh. Yeah. Uh, well, I wanted to I wanted to step back a minute, and uh, you know, we you mentioned uh, I think at the beginning of of what you just talked about, uh, you know, the the comparison of the the early ZR1 that we had talked about, the the 1990 ZR1. And uh, since we had talked about that, I, again, I don't think we talked about it on the, the podcast, but you know, we actually took the car over to the motorsports park and, and drove it. And you know, we were talking about, we're kind of talking a little bit about history versus modern day right now. And probably got a little off track from what we were going to talk about tonight, but hey, that's how we roll, right? We we took it over, and I don't either. Uh, We took it over, and and I drove it on the track for a while, and you know, got a got a few shakedown laps, you know, kind of get used to the car laps in. And if you know, some listeners know the the ZR ones, the C four ZR ones had a key in them and you could change change the engine from normal mode to uh, full power and when you switch the key over to full power you get the full 375 horse uh, you know engine it opens up uh, i think it's two more injectors and and a couple other things uh, happen in the engine electronically through the computer and voila you got 375 horsepower And, uh, you know, I mean, like John said, we've got cars out there that are running on the street every day with 375 horse in them. Now it's not a big deal, but all I could think about when I was driving, I'm, I'm driving a 1990 ZR1 Corvette. Okay. It was a pretty big deal in 1990 that that car was out. Uh, kind of like today, the the 2019 ZR1, it's kind of a big deal that we've got a car out there with 755 horse coming out of factory. In 20 years, what are people going to think? You know, we don't know. But as I was driving it around the track, handling, just feeling the power of it, things like that, I kind of went back to thinking about, and of course, I didn't get my first car until... 1999 yeah i think it was 1990 98 or 99 that i aside from my gto that my dad and i had and restored you know my first real street car that i would drive to and from school most you know every day and 
that was a 1993 Beretta GT. And I think we've talked about that on the show before. And I'm thinking, okay, the, the Beretta GT is three years newer than that 1990 ZR1 I was driving. But I can remember driving the Beretta when I was younger. And a Beretta GT was a pretty decent car. I mean, it was a sporty car. It was, you know, a two-door. They were quite peppy. I probably had a little too much fun in that car, and I think we talked about it on the show. But just thinking back on that and driving that ZR1, I was blown away. Not thinking about anything we have today, but just thinking about my Beretta GT when I was a kid and that ZR1 and putting myself in the 1990s again. That 1990 ZR1 was insane. I mean, the power that it would put down, even at 375 horse, just it was an incredible car for the time. And, you know, it's just amazing what we can do with technology when it's permitted throughout history and there isn't some rule book like we've talked about or some regulation uh you know obviously in the 90s corvette was still battling as they do today federal emission standards obviously when you buy a corvette now you have to pay the uh, basically the gas guzzler tax on it um but it's just it's incredible, you know, as we kind of talk about this and, you know, John, you talk about the uh, racer, you know, the independent racer, you know, and kind of his work with, you know, retrofitting a, a Porsche to try to make it uh, run a little better and not have the issues. And just when, when we have the ability in this industry to have that leeway and have some innovation the things we can turn out are incredible and it's just it's mind-blowing i have not driven a new 2019 zr1 yet i hopefully i will at some point down the road but i can't even imagine i mean it's it it's got to be insane i mean it's just got to be an incredible experience although i've heard from people who have them and who have driven them that as long as you respect the car, which I think we've touched on on this show before, I, I personally don't care what vehicle you're getting in. You have to respect that you're in a machine that can do a lot of damage if it gets out of control. But if you respect the the new Corvette ZR1, it's a perfectly normal driving road car. It just, when you want power, you have it. So I, I just something I wanted to touch on. You're absolutely right. I mean, <clears throat> and if we go to for some of our older listeners out there, it's no different than 1970 and hopping into your 427, 435, you know, Corvette Z, um, ZR1 at the time or like, and, you know, the power, it's carbureted and it's raw power and it's noisy and it's loud and it smells like fuel and. You go from 1970 to 1990, you jump 20 years, and same horsepower in that. Comes on a little bit smoother. Car starts every morning. Don't have to worry about vapor locking, but the performance is there. And we jump now another, well, 25 or so years, if you consider the end of the ZR1, 25 years to the next ZR1. And it it's the same thing. It's just this top-of-the-line over the top 
horsepower. Uh, it's just, we get it a little bit better and it's a little bit nicer. It's that theme that I've mentioned before. And now we're talking about it when it comes to horsepower and torque. It's, you know, nothing new isn't old. And that's it is we've had these high horsepower cars. We just know how to do them a little bit better and handle them a little bit better. And I mean, you know, Derek's talking about, you know, respecting that, that ZR1 and comparing it to his Beretta. And I think the Beretta at the time was a 127 or 135 horsepower in a Beretta GT. I had a friend that had a 90 Beretta GT as one of his cars. I think it was a 90. It's just that step and it's, it's the power. It came on a lot harder. You know, my, and I make the comparison to my SHO, but that's an all wheel drive car with smart braking where, you know, it's kind of variable a little bit on the braking with the ABS and traction control. And, um, I'm sure it's got an ability in there, the stability, dynamic stability control. And that makes me, that means I can get in it and drive 375 horsepower like a crazy idiot and probably not kill myself. I hop into that ZR1 and I drive it like I do my Taurus, I'm going to know a telephone pole really quick because the ZR1 might have ABS. It doesn't have stability control. It doesn't have dynamic braking. It doesn't have all-wheel drive. It doesn't have traction control. It just means it's going (laughs) to go, as the brakes pulsate as I'm sliding into that telephone pole sideways. When we talk about these older cars for our younger listeners, it is, they're all different, you know, different beasts. And when you jump, like I said, back to 1970 and it's carbureted, it's, you know, that power comes on and it doesn't come on the same way every single time you push that that pedal down because the car doesn't adjust, doesn't have that computer to adjust for atmospheric temperature and atmospheric pressure and, you know, 91 octane, 93 octane, 87 octane, little things like that. It just comes on. I mean, a carburetor is just basically a blender mixing oil or, excuse me, gas and uh, gas and air and dumping it into the engine as fast as it can. And, you know, you get into the newer car, it's fuel injection and it's modulating a little bit and vaporizing the fuel as it gets mixed into the air. And now you get into the new stuff. It's technically not even mixing the fuel with the air per se, because it's direct injection. It's, you know, shooting that fuel right into the combustion chamber. And yes, there's air in there. I understand that. But it's not mixing and having to go by the valves. It gets shot right in there and is ready to detonate why it's still this fine mist and doesn't even have a chance to uh, start solidifying back into droplets or anything. It's just technology is wonderful. And that's what makes, to me, the car hobby interesting and why I'm so passionate about the car hobby. As I said 20 minutes ago, the innovation and the thinking and everything behind it, it happens in every industry, but cars, you get it, you know, they cover everything from, you know, computers to video screens to chemistry to metallurgy. I mean, they just, just about everything, you know, other than food. And then unless you count cars with refrigerators and bars and stuff in them wait i can get a car with a refrigerator in it what uh yeah there's a few of them i mean that's that's like blending my two favorite hobbies cars and eating i mean arcs if you want to get stupid i mean our 2004 sob that the ex-wife and i had had an air-conditioned glove compartment so it would keep your sodas cool it's really not a refrigerator 
Oh, that's it, it wasn't. It really wasn't refrigerated, but um, at one point you could get a refrigerator and an F one fifty in the center console. So what? <laughs> you can have anything you want with enough money. Nice. Now, now, John, I do have to be the uh, the guy that that backs us up yet again, and just so we don't get too many comments. Um, you know, I, I let you, you, you run on there a little bit, uh, discussing things, but, uh, just so everyone does know the, the new ZR one does have active handling and traction control. So we'll probably get called out on that cause you said it didn't, but it actually does. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant the 90 ZR one, not the 2009. Oh, okay. <laughs> or maybe I misheard you, but, um, well, better be safe than sorry because, you need not misrepresent a future piece in your museum. Yeah, there you go. There you go. And and I will say probably a row of them there in that factory delivery line anyway. So, Well, yes, we do have a, a number of them sitting on the boulevard waiting for their new owners right now. I will say that there have been, uh, you know, and we're kind of jumping all over the place tonight. I kind of like it. Uh, it. It really fits no driving gloves, you know, the true mission of this of this uh, podcast. Um I hope you're not saying Will keeps us on track. No, it would be even further off track if he was here. Uh, there would be no common thread tying any of this together. But, you know, there's been some uh, pretty good articles out in Road and Track and uh, a couple other magazines lately about the fact that there is no need ever to turn your traction control off. And I think those are some pretty good articles. And maybe we can talk about one of them, a couple of them down the road in another podcast. But, you know, any more, I mean, it, it's true. I mean, there is not a lot of reason to ever turn your traction control off. It's a fantastic safety feature. And yeah, I, I don't want to dive in too much to it until maybe Will's back and we can all discuss the articles. But, um, you know, it, it's again, touching on that development of technology and making us uh, you know, making things safer with cars. And yes, I'm also the person that'll sit there and say all of this. And we talked about this, what, three episodes ago, all the technology we're putting into cars is making them easier to drive. And, and we're not actually driving cars. Hence the reason we're having so many issues with, you know, cell phone usage and things like that. But when it comes down to something like traction control, I mean, that is, it's key. I mean, it is it is extremely important to have that traction control, especially for a good chunk of the people that are driving today that don't understand how traction actually works and, and how you can handle a car. Well, it, it leads, and we'll use this kind of as the closing statement since this will be the one that will get the most response. I live in the South, obviously, and I live in Alabama. And you know you're going to hear a good story when it begins. Here, hold my beer. And it's kind of the same thing. Anytime somebody tells me, and he turned the traction control off, I know it's going to be a very interesting story from that point on. And it usually ends up with a tow truck. Yep. I'll say with that, I think Derek and I got into this thinking this would be a 30, 35 minute episode. And here we are banging on that. 50, 55 minute mark. Uh, we're right there. I hope you enjoyed spending an hour with us again. We really hope to have Will back next week. He's just personal life gets in the way. I'll be honest, it's going to start hitting me here in a couple of weeks. My house goes on the market and then uh, I'll be doing some moving this month and things like that. 
with that, I'm going to, unless Derek throws something in and backs up, because we know he's a historian and he always likes to take things back to the past, but I'm going to say good night and I'm out of here. No, I'm, I'm going to say, uh, well, depending on when you're listening to this, good morning, good evening, or good night. And uh, we've enjoyed spending the hour with you.